Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we are going to be shattering some ninjas. I am very excited. (laughs) Uh, So recently, we released an episode about the science and history of a substance called pycrete, which is a type of composite ice that was researched in Great Britain and a little bit in Canada during World War II as a potential material for building aircraft carriers. Uh, now, the so-called Berg ship that uh, that they wanted to build was made obsolete by changes in other war conditions before it was ever built, so we don't know if it would have worked, but the research on pycrete as a material itself remains very interesting, and so if you haven't listened to that episode, I would recommend you go back and, and check it out now. I think it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and we also talk a bit about Game of Thrones in there if you need a little fantasy to uh, encourage you to check that episode out. Right. Uh, so the short version is pycrete is a suspension of wood pulp in water ice. And the ideal mixture arrived at by Allied Research was something like 86% watered, 14% wood pulp. And it had a number of material advantages as a, as a building material or a structural material. Uh, this included that the structural properties of pycrete were less variable and thus more predictable than regular ice. So if you wanted to make a structure out of ice, you could understand what you were working with. With a lot more predictably with pycrete. But also, pycrete melts more slowly than regular ice. It seems like the wood pulp content helps insulate it. Uh, so you take the same amount of material of ice versus pycrete, the pycrete melts a lot slower. Uh, also, pycrete is much stronger than regular ice. It can withstand heavier loads and more powerful impacts with less fracture and less plastic deformation. And uh, one of the reasons it's supposed that pycrete is stronger than regular ice is that if a crack forms under pressure or impact, the wood pulp fibers prevent the crack from spreading along the full width of the material. So it's just far less susceptible to fracture-based failures. It would maybe kind of deform and sag in a plastic way over time, but it's also less susceptible to that than regular ice is. But anyway, when we were reading about all this, I immediately thought, of a parallel type of material to pycrete, where various fibrous substances are enmeshed in a suspension that is, by mass, mostly water, and that composite material is our bodies. Mm. And I started to wonder, is the principle that makes pycrete resistant to fracture the same reason that if you drop a mass of frozen meat on the ground, it doesn't shatter the way a block of ice would? Now, we can come back to that, but this immediately got my brain spinning on another question, which takes us into some outworld territory. Uh, specifically, this question is, if you froze a human body the way Sub-Zero does in Mortal Kombat, or like many other examples we can talk about from, from movies and games and stuff in a bit, c- could you shatter that human body with a slick roundhouse kick? <laughs> or would a frozen human body be resistant to fracture and shattering? And if so, how far would that resistance go? Yeah, we actually chatted about this a bit when we recorded the Pycrete episode, but then we ended up uh, cutting it for a couple of reasons. First of all, for length. Um, uh, but then also you wanted to look into it a little bit more, as I recall. 
Well, yeah, one reason I think is that the discussion we actually had about it when we originally recorded the episode was kind of incomplete. Like we talked about how mm -hmm. the wood fibers within the pycrete make it resistant to shattering, how this was probably a reasonable analogy for the frozen flesh of an animal, which is a composite sort of alloy of a different kind with lots of materials enmeshed in between, you know, muscle fibers, fat, protein, bone, and bone has its own different components. It's got a collagen protein component and a mineral uh, hydroxyapatite component. And anyway, for these reasons, a frozen body might be somewhat similar in its resistance to shattering. And of course, I, I mentioned this a second ago, but there's an experience probably a lot of people can relate to. If you've ever dropped a heavy piece of ice on the ground, you, it, you know, it shatters. It's just very brittle. It shatters into a million pieces. But if you drop a similar weight piece of frozen meat from say six feet in the air, I think you're very unlikely to see anything that looks like shattering. It's more likely to kind of bounce a little bit. It might get bruised as it does so, but it's not going to shatter like glass. Yeah, and it's, it's similar to how the various frozen foods we bring home from the grocery store. Uh, have you ever opened the box and you're like, oh, man, I dropped that frozen pizza and now it's shattered into a million pieces? No, we just don't see that. Right. So something about the, the contents, the material makeup of, of meat, of animal flesh, of body parts seems to make it more resistant to fracture than other, you know, suspensions in water would be. So our initial discussion in that episode, we, we sort of said, you know, I don't think it's very plausible that you could shatter a body. But after we recorded it, I, I sort of thought some more and I was like, wait a minute, this really should depend on some more conditions that we didn't actually get into. Like, so could you shatter a human body at regular freezer temperatures around zero degrees Fahrenheit or negative 18 Celsius? I think under normal circumstances, the answer to that is just no, probably not. Uh, so initially, our answer to this question was that the sub-zero scenario, where sub-zero freezes you with a blast of ice and then kicks you and you shatter all over the place, that's fairly far-fetched. But what we didn't really get into in our original conversation was how far this shatter resistance extends. What if you get the body really, really cold, deep into the sub-zero wilds? Then I think the question becomes more interesting. Absolutely. And and also, if we're going to talk about sub-zero, I mean, sub-zero is is not just a guy throwing around some liquid nitrogen. He is supposed to be a, a Linku grand, uh, grandmaster. You know, he's a, a, a magician, a sorcerer who's using frost magic and martial arts to battle various gods and cyborgs and uh, <laughs> otherworldly monsters. So uh, before we, we, we get back into the science, I, I want to talk just a little bit about this obsession that emerges, um, I think, largely uh, post-1991. Uh, th this idea of bad guys and sometimes good guys uh, being frozen, partially frozen, and then partially or entirely shattered as if they were a piece of porcelain. Now, why um, would you trace it to 1991? Well, uh, here's the thing. And, and, and I'm not entirely – it's entirely possible that there's some, pr uh, some work prior to 1991 that features both the freezing and shattering of an adversary. Certainly you have examples of things being frozen, enemies being frozen. The classic uh, The Blob comes to mind, right, where the, mm. the, the, the creature is defeated with the cold. But in terms of, of something being frozen and shattering, 1991 is key because that's when James Cameron's Terminator 2 came out. Ah, uh, Yes. And I always forget how early in the 90s it actually came out. That always catches me off guard that it was 91, which is, you know, basically the 80s. Oh, no, 1991 was still the 80s. As we've discussed, canon on this show <laughs> is that the 1980s ended in 1992. 
<laughs> in fact, the most 80s year there ever was, the like most iconic when we think of everything that is the 80s was the year 1990. Yeah, I mean, is the culmination of it, right? Yeah. So Terminator 2, of course, iconic sci-fi action blockbuster, famous for a number of reasons, but it also featured some incredible effects, incredible digital effects that just you know, changed what we expected in films. And there were you know, so many copycats that, that came along afterwards, uh, some better than others. But there's this one sequence in particular uh, where Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-800 Terminator freezes or incident- accidentally freezes um, the liquid metal T-1000 Terminator played by Robert Patrick with liquid nitrogen. It's like a factory setting for their fight. And an environmental um, um, you know, hazard of that fight is uh, a frozen T-1000. Uh, so Arnold uh, lifts up his shotgun, I believe, uh, fires a, a, a one-line liner at him as well as a, um, a shotgun shell or a slug or something. And it just explodes, uh, just just causes the, the T-1000, the frozen T-1000 to explode into hundreds and hundreds of shards of, of this froze, now frozen liquid metal, which, of course, then begins to slowly melt and then reform into the T-1000 once more. As I remember it, he shoots him with a pistol, but I could be is wrong. Is it a pistol? Okay. I, that's my memory. I could be wrong. But also, this is definitely when he f- he uses the phrase he's learned, hasta la vista, baby, showing that he has learned humanity from Edward Furlong. <laughs> that's right. Uh, by the way, I was reading about this film. Um, again, it's been a very long time since I've seen it. But there's this weird deleted scene that lines up with the whole topic of demonic duck feet on succubi that we've discussed in the past on the show, this idea in medieval and post-medieval um, Catholic and Protestant culture, the idea that you would have these demons that would disguise themselves as attractive members of, the, say, the opposite sex, that would then try and seduce you into sin. But God, taking pity on uh, the pious uh, man or woman, would in, would make sure that the disguise was imperfect. Uh, while this demon might take the form of a beautiful woman, it wouldn't be able to get the feet right. The feet would be duck feet, like demonic duck feet. Um, uh, so there's a way out for the uh, for the pious. Right. So if you're very observant, if you keep your wits about you, then you would never fall for one of these uh, like a succubus because you notice, oh, she's got bird feet. <laughs> so, yeah, according to, to the Internet Movie Database, there's a, there is a sequence in the steel mill where the T-1000 um, is uh, it's been previously frozen and, and then, of course, exploded. And then it's come back together and not everything's working properly. It's having difficulty maintaining its shape and color, like when it touches other materials. And there's a scene where uh, it's trying uh, to pretend to be Sarah Connor. Um, and, and then John Connor looks down and sees, oh, it's not Sarah Connor because it has grotesque liquid metal feet in, instead of, uh, in, in, instead of uh, uh, human feet. Right. The feet, its feet are becoming the same texture as the floor that it's walking on, which is a cool yeah. detail. It is. Yeah. But it, but it made me think back to that. The idea that the, the, the otherworldly alien pretender uh, can't quite get the feet right <laughs> on its disguise. Okay, so you think that it's probably this scene in Terminator 2 where the T-1000 gets shattered that spawns uh, these mini copycats that come afterwards in video games, movies, where everybody's getting frozen and shattered into a million pieces. 
Right. Like take uh, take Sub Zero, for instance. Okay, a character in the Mortal Kombat video game. Now, Mortal Kombat, the original arcade game, came out in '92, which is really too close to '91 for it to reflect uh, that Terminator 2 uh, uh, death or explosion scene uh, to any significant degree. And perhaps due to that overlap, you don't see any shattering action uh, in the game. Really, uh, I mean, Sub Zero can freeze people, and then he can you know uppercut the frozen person and some ice goes flying, some blood goes flying, but nobody is shattered. Sub-Zero's original fatality in that game is a blatant predator homage, rather, in which he rips the opponent's spine out of their body. Oh, okay. So it was a movie ripoff, even an Arnold movie ripoff, but a different one. Right. But then, uh, 93, the following year, we see the ports of this game make it out to uh, uh, the different home systems. And this was too violent for uh, Nintendo. Uh, famously, oh. Super Nintendo changed the blood <laughs> into sweat, and, and they toned down some of the fatalities. But they, they did one really cool thing, is they completely recl- replaced Sub-Zero's fatality with one in which first he freezes the opponent, and then he like backhands them and shatters them into a million pieces. Well, that sounds like one of the few upgrades for the Super Nintendo version, which I had as a child. And like, oh, it yeah? was very odd seeing the, the, the quote blood coming off people. That was not blood. It was just some weird kind of gray tan colored liquid flying off every <laughs> time you punch somebody. Yeah. I had the, I had the Genesis version of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had the blood, but I remember being a little jealous of that frozen fatality that Sub-Zero had. Now, it's definitely in the Mortal Kombat movie, which, whew, dude, if you have not gone back and watched that masterpiece recently, I recommend it. It, it uh, really, really holds up in the worst possible way. It's one of those movies with early CGI where all of the marketing for it bragged about the CGI, except it, it, like mm-hmm. I remember the VHS box said, strap yourself in for these amazing morphin sequences. But then it, you look at it now and it's like, it, you know, everything has about four corners and it's just assaulting your eyes with poison. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, this, yeah, this was 95. Uh, so plenty of time to, to, uh, to really go after that Terminator 2 um, uh, style and try and use some of that technology. Uh, Paul W.S. Anderson uh, was the director. And, uh, you know, I, it, as weird as some of the CGI is compared to today, I'd have to say the Goro puppet was really cool. They had some nice practical effects mixed up in there as well. Yeah, I'll give them that. But that's, we're not talking about Goro today. Goro, man, we'll come back to in, uh, another time. But we're talking about Sub-Zero. And that scene does feature some great freeze-shatter action. I think the, the moment that actually made it into the trailer is Sub-Zero is fighting some red shirt. Like, he's, he's literally fighting um, a ninja that's wearing red. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not Ermac or anything. It's just a straight-up uh, uh, red, red shirt ninja. No, and he's wearing that, a sign that says, I am here to die. Yeah, yeah. basically, you know what he's there for. He's a demo ninja. He's here to demonstrate this fatality. So he does a big leaping kick at Sub-Zero, right, as Sub-Zero unleashes all of this crazy, um, you know, I, I have to say, and this will come into play later, I feel like there's some really cool, like, atmospheric stuff going on with the effects that Sub-Zero uses here to to create his ice magic. Like, he's doing something to the air and perhaps the moisture in the air. And then as that ninja comes flying across the room, bam, Sub-Zero freezes him, ninja smashes into the wall, and just shatters into a million pieces. Perfection. Yes. <laughs> um so we'll we'll keep coming back to Sub Zero, but that was was not uh, by any means the only um, 
uh, copycat or, um, or let's say it wasn't the only film inspired by this kind of freeze and shatter death sequence. You, of course, had Time Cop in 94, directed by Peter uh, Hyams, uh, who also directed 2010 and uh, Outland, which is a, a kind of a, a, a sleazy, not really sleazy, maybe kind of intentionally seedy sci-fi film uh, starring uh, Sean Connery. Is that the one that's supposed to be high noon in space? Yeah, it's straight. It's a straight up western, really, with uh, Peter Boyle. I think is the bad guy. It's. Uh, uh, mm. I, I remember digging it when I was younger, but there's another one I haven't seen in forever. Time Cop, however, features a time traveling time cop, as you would expect, <laughs> played by Jean Claude Van Damme, and a great villain role, really a dual villain role, because he plays himself as uh, like as the present version of himself and a past version of himself, uh, played by the the late Ron Silver. And there's one scene in particular where a henchman gets his arm frozen, again, by liquid nitrogen that just happens to be there in the space where people are fighting. And then Jean-Claude Van Damme kicks that frozen arm and shatters it. There's actually uh, just involving an arm. I remembered there's a scene in the older version, uh, the movie adaptation of Snowpiercer, where a character is punished by having their arms stuck outside into the cold, and then it gets pulled back in and it's frozen solid and they smash it. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good, more more recent example of the, the, the frozen shatter uh, death or torment sequence. Uh, another big one from 93 is uh, Demolition Man. It's Stallone versus Wesley Snipes, and um, Stallone eventually freezes Snipes and kicks his head off, which then shatters. Am I the only person who saw the first half of this movie about five times and never saw the end? I don't know. Oh, no. I, I don't think I even saw that much. Is it one that they were showing on, like, Sci-Fi Channel or something I, a lot of the time? I guess it must have been. I just remember, like, seeing over and over again the scenes about, like, introducing the premise that the problem with the future is that the cops are not violent enough. Maybe for my from my part anyway, I think maybe it was prominently featured in the trailer. And since I never saw the film and only the trailer, that's all I know about it. I know like the basic premise and have sort of a, a general idea about the look of this future. Uh, yeah, well, I think it posits that the whole future is the Galleria. It's just the whole future mm-hmm. is like a shopping mall from the 90s. <laughs> all right, let's see a, a few other quick examples. Um 1997 saw both uh, 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 the, the film Cube utilize a, a freezing trap in there. Um, the 1997 film Alien Resurrection, uh, there's a sequence where this happens to a xenomorph that like escapes and there's a freezing trap and it shatters itself. And then there's one from 2004 that I don't think I'd ever heard of uh, titled Mind Hunters. Not to be confused with the recent television series that's, that's actually uh, you know, quite quite good uh no this is a different beast entirely and there's a a crazy sequence that you can find on youtube in which a trap again some sort of uh, liquid nitrogen powered trap freezes christian slater's character's ankles and then causes him to snap off at the ankles fall over backwards and then i guess he's still freezing as he falls over because then he like grotesquely shatters uh, when he hits the ground that's rough man now, the one that I, I, I can't get out of my head is Jason X, which I know is one of your favorites. Oh, yes. Uh, this is probably my favorite Friday the 13th movie because, of course, Jason X takes place in outer space. And there's a scene, and there are multiple, it has a lot of great kills in it, um, a lot of creative kills, uh, including one scene in which um, uh, uh, Cyber Jason at this point, I think he's Cyber Jason at this point, um, dunks a person's face into like a tray or a a vat of liquid nitrogen and then shatters their face uh, by smacking it into a tabletop. 
So clearly in the 90s, everybody got the bug. <laughs> the filmmakers saw saw something. They were like, ooh, shattering people. And they were just on the train. They were ready. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's new. It's a gnarly death scene to include in your, your violent uh, 90s picture. But then also, I th- I have this feeling that this, this, this trope is popular because it also drives home this this idea about the exaggerated fragility of the human body. Mm. You know, we, we see this uh, in various turn to stone tropes. We see it, uh, you know, quite, um, uh, you know, quite tragically. I think we've, we've discussed in the past on the show uh, um, delusions in which one believes their body to be essentially be made of glass and be so fragile that they don't dare touch anything. Oh, yeah. And then you see like the opposite of it in some action films, especially I think the, the ultimate extreme of this is the 1992 Hong Kong action film Ricky O, the story of Ricky, <laughs> in which our hero, like a lot of heroes in, in these films, is pretty much indestructible, but to just an alarming degree, nothing seems to hurt him. And when he hurts anyone else, when he fights back against bad guys, it seems like the, the slightest touch just makes them explode like a bag of blood. They're just everyone else is just so fragile. Yeah, everybody else is just vegetable soup. I mean, it. I, I, I seem to recall a scene where two characters punch at each other and their fists hit and Ricky splits the other guy's arm down the middle lengthwise like a mattock splitting a log. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the human body is just made out of balsa wood, according uh-huh. to that film. Well, maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can talk about the, uh, the actual relationship between temperature and brittleness. All right, we're back. Now, today, again, we're uh, looking at this question of could you, could you freeze somebody and shatter them like Sub-Zero? There are some complications to this question. Obviously, this is not uh, an experiment you could perform ethically on a real person, right? Uh, but, you know, you, you can seek out some analogies. There's another reason that this question is a little bit hard to answer if you're just trying to reason from general knowledge on materials and mechanics and heat. And that's, of course, that the body is a complex matrix of different kinds of materials all stuck together. So you can look up, say, uh, existing published knowledge on the temperatures where brittle fracture is more likely to happen in materials like common industrial plastics or types of steel. But I have not found a similar chart for animal bodies, and I doubt that there would be such a thing because who would do that research? Maybe you do that research. If you do, let us know. (laughs) Uh, But in general, uh, there is actually a documented relationship between temperature and brittleness in many materials, and this relationship does extend well beyond the simple transition of water from its liquid to frozen state. So it's not just the freezing of liquids into solids, even once you have you know, already frozen things as they get colder or things without water content as they get colder, very often, in fact, almost always, they tend to get more and more brittle. So just one example of this, I was looking at a a short, well-presented article uh, on, on MIT's website, MIT's Ask an Engineer, where they were addressing the question of why plastics get brittle when they get cold. It was by Peter Dunn, and it was uh, interviewing Greg Rutledge from MIT's Department of Chemical Engineering. And so they were looking at the concepts of ductility and brittleness. Now, ductility is the ability of a material to absorb stress by changing shape without breaking. Brittle materials react to stress put on them by fracturing and shattering. And uh, plastics are 
mostly considered to be ductile because of the behavior of molecules down at the molecular level. Often these molecules themselves can stretch, absorbing energy in the process. But when you add all this together, these molecules uh, can each absorb energy by stretching, and they can dissipate stress from loads or impacts. And this ability to dissipate stress helps prevent fracture. But this depends on the somewhat free motion of individual molecules. So if you, you were able to zoom all the way down to the molecular level of the material, for a material to be ductile, what you would want to see is the ability of molecules to slide past or through one another. Uh, and the analogy that Rutledge uses here is like spaghetti coated with olive oil, right? You cook <laughs> a bunch of spaghetti and it does not have any oil on it. Obviously, what's it going to do? It's going to stick together in a big clump. You try to stir it up and it does not stir easily. Uh, but if you put olive oil on it, suddenly all the noodles, they can kind of slide around. So in a material, especially like a plastic, if the molecules in the material uh, behave this way, where they all kind of stick together in a rigid structure and they can't stretch and they can't slip easily past or through one another, when stress is applied at a particular place, the energy from that stress can't be dissipated by spreading all across the material. So if the stress is too great and the energy can't be dissipated, it'll start to create a crack and then a full fracture. Now, where does temperature come in here? Well, there's something that is known as the glass transition temperature, which they point out is uh, the, the point where you have an amorphous solid, and this could be like a glass or it could be rubber. They also give the example of cotton candy. It's at the point where that goes from being ductile, like we were just talking about, to being brittle, where it's susceptible to cracks. And so each material has its own temperature where that transition happens. Usually the the temperature for most materials that we deal with on the day-to-day -day is either very high or very low, so you're not going to really observe things going through this transition temperature if you're just doing everyday, you know, uh, stuff. Like, you're dealing with a piece of rubber. Normally, the stuff you would do with it does not take it to its glass transition temperature. So, for example, in the case of tire rubber, they say that the glass transition temperature is negative 72 degrees Celsius. You're not usually getting down that far, so you're not getting to the point where you observe vulcanized rubber becoming brittle. So we're not used to it, but it is a totally real part of physics. And it, and it all depends on the material. Some amorphous solids can become brittle at much more manageable temperatures. The article gives the example of polypropylene, which they say has a glass transition temperature of somewhere between negative 20 and zero degrees Celsius. And so that's within you know, temperatures you might encounter out on a cold winter day or even in your own freezer. And I have noticed this personally when taking plastic food containers out of the freezer. Mm -hmm. if, if Sometimes if you drop them or knock them against something, they seem much more prone to cracking or shattering than they, than they are at room temperature. And I have not noticed a similar difference for glass. But I was looking around at some other articles, and it, yeah, it just seems that for all kinds of materials, maybe there are a few exceptions, but for almost anything, if you cool it down really, really cold, it starts getting into territory where it becomes more brittle. Uh, like there's this term that's often talked about with reference to metals, which is the ductile to brittle transition. Uh, so, so steel is an example here that undergoes a ductile to brittle transition. Some compositions of steel, unfortunately, have ductile to brittle transition temperatures 
that are within the range of natural fluctuation. So some steel structures can actually become brittle enough to fail by cracking instead of absorbing stress by deforming and reforming uh, under like real world conditions, like winter conditions. Yeah, there's uh, there's this case of the um, uh, the Liberty class cargo ships during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a British concept kind of concept constructed by the U.S. Uh, at a low cost uh, for you know basically a mass produced cargo option for the war. Uh, so they ended up building thousands of these things, but unfortunately, the metal of their uh, their hulls was observed to fail after exposure to frigid North Atlantic waters, frigid enough to make the steel itself brittle. And uh, this was this was due to some of the, the issues we're discussing already, but also uh, part of it apparently had to do with the fact that the hulls were welded as opposed to riveted together from separate plates, and this was also compounded by just frequent overloading of the vessels themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, another example of what can happen when you take uh, um, uh, uh, t- take a, a ship that is not specifically designed to maybe thrive in like really frigid waters and put them there. Yeah, and essentially every source I looked at uh, seemed in agreement that this this holds true for almost any material. That uh, what we've been mainly talking about, because most of the research seems to be in. Uh, in plastics and metals, you know, things or stuff like glass, things that you would expect to be researched because they are industrial materials. But it would also hold true to some extent for other types of composite materials, things that have mineral content, things that have proteins in them. And this would probably include bodies. So at lower and lower temperatures, the ability of a material to shift and reform at the molecular level continually decreases. The The links between molecules become more and more prone to tiny initial defects spreading into full-scale fractures in their crystalline structure. And if you add a lot of these fractures at the same time, basically you get shattering. So I'm increasingly convinced now that actually I think if you got a body or, or a piece of a human body cold enough, you very well could shatter it. So the question at this point would be, what is the level? How cold would it have to get? You know, what is the level? Is it coldness that could actually be achieved in reality? And again, I, I think just based on what I've been reading, the answer there is probably yes. And you could mm. it's at temperatures that you could actually achieve given something like liquid nitrogen. You know, the more we talk about this, I would love to see a scene in like a, a kung fu action film where the villain and the hero are about to square off and then they both notice that there's a tank of liquid nitrogen behind them and they're like whoa 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 let's <laughs> let's go outside let's move into a different part of the factory cuz this is just uh, I don't like where this is headed it's like the Poochie episode where they never actually get to the fireworks factory except this is, you know <laughs> they just they, they never get to the liquid nitrogen <laughs> oh man I, there has to be a liquid nitrogen sequence in itchy and scratchy Oh, I'm sure there is. But because they always flip it around on you, it wouldn't be a straightforward shattering. What would it be? It would be something more interesting. Oh, probably made into ice and then ground up into ice cubes that are somehow still alive in the cocktail that then oh. uh, the mouse is drinking. You're joking, but they literally did that. That's They one did of them. that? Okay, that's, what, that's why it comes to me, because it's stuck in my mind somewhere. Yeah, the, the, the eyeball ice cubes become ice cubes in a drink. There you go. So liquid nitrogen is a convenient place to investigate this, or 
I guess it's not a place, a convenient substance with which to investigate this question because it's something you can actually get huge tubs of. And in its liquid state, uh, liquid nitrogen is somewhere between 63 and 77 Kelvin or so, which is like negative 210 Celsius to uh, 196 Celsius or negative 346 Fahrenheit to 320 Fahrenheit. Sorry for all the numbers, but just wanted to give you an idea. It's very, very cold. It tend, you know, It's boiling at room temperature. If you have a bucket of liquid nitrogen at room temperature. It's kind of like if you put, you know, a pan of water in like a 600 degree oven or something, it's going to be, it's going to be bubbling. It's, it's, it's aggressive stuff because it wants to convert back into the gas. That's the same gas that's in the air we breathe It's more than 70% of the air we breathe. Uh, so, so this is very, very cold. If you could submerge a person in liquid nitrogen long enough to actually freeze them all the way through, I'm starting to get the feeling that some kind of shattering, maybe not, you know, a billion pieces glass type shattering, but some significant, you know, chunking off of of brittle shards would actually happen. But anyway, this is all just theoretical reasoning based on other things we know about materials. Uh, so, so maybe talk is cheap. I, maybe we should look for physical evidence that this has actually happened in the real world. Yeah, and luckily there have been people that have uh, experimented with this that have said, you know what, I'm going to get uh, a tank of, um, of liquid nitrogen and I'm going to get uh, something that could stand in for a human head and we're going to see what, what happens. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so b- before we get to direct empirical research, uh, first I wanted to see, okay, is there anything documented in nature, right? I, mm-hmm. I combed through a big newspaper database, trying a bunch of different combinations of search terms to find any evidence I could of a documented case of a frozen body being shattered. I found nothing. Oh, I, I found tons of stuff, but nothing like what we were actually looking for. I, l- I found lots of reviews of movies and TV shows, like that one with Christian Slater you mentioned. Uh, there were a mm-hmm. bunch of articles yeah. <laughs> about that. Uh, I found a lot of old crime reports involving frozen bodies and people named Shafter. Uh, I, I found a lot of stuff about frozen seafood and a kind of packaging called a shatter pack, which I think is a terrible name <laughs> for a type of packaging. Uh, but so if there is any natural documented case of a human body being frozen and then shattering, I could not find it. Now, the closest thing I came across was I did find an old straight dope column where the author's trying to answer the exact same question, can you shatter a body, and finds a bunch of cases of people being frozen sort of or exposed to liquid nitrogen in various ways and not shattering. And the the column concludes from this that you probably would not shatter if you were frozen. But I don't think any of the cases that the column looks at really count because it's stuff like somebody gets uh, somebody gets liquid nitrogen spilled on them, which, you know, in fact, one thing that uh, seems to be true is that you can probably save it. I mean, don't try this at home, but you can probably safely get a little bit of liquid nitrogen uh, splashed against your skin and you'd be okay because the Leiden frost effect immediately turns it into to gas that insulates your skin from the freeze and cold liquid itself. Uh, now, if you were like to dip your hand in it or can have continued exposure, obviously that would be extremely bad. There was one case uh, documented in the straight dope column of a person who apparently dipped their foot in a container of liquid nitrogen and kept it there. Oh. Uh, it's not, not quite clear why this happened, but there was no documentation of that person's foot shattering, though obviously it was massively traumatic to the body. Like, so don't do that at all. Mm-hmm. 
So that column concludes, uh, quote, judging from the above, I'm guessing fibrous tissue would prevent a body from simply shattering no matter what happened. Uh, but then again, okay, so so you could take that and say, okay, that sort of holds up with, you know, if you drop a piece of frozen meat from the freezer, it doesn't shatter. So maybe it just wouldn't happen to a body. Uh, but I want to come back with a few uh, empirical controlled examples that we can talk about. Now, I have not found any controlled studies published in actual scientific journals about shattering frozen animals or animal parts. Maybe there's something I haven't dug up yet, but I don't think it's out there. But I've come up with a number of informal tests that have been published just on other people's articles, podcasts, videos, YouTube and stuff. Uh, for example, the Naked Scientists, one time they explored this on their podcast in an episode from 2012. Actually, it was an episode that featured recent show guest Kat Arney. Huh. They didn't freeze her, I hope. They're... No. Un okay. No, unfortunately, Cat uh, was not involved in this particular experiment. Okay, it was a good. couple of the other hosts. But uh, but a couple of the other hosts did an, ex an empirical experiment. They explained as follows. You, you get some chicken pieces, a turkey drumstick. You freeze them with liquid nitrogen and then attempt to smash them with a hammer. So <laughs> they, they pour liquid nitrogen all over meat inside a bucket. And after being submerged in the liquid nitrogen for a while, the experimenters believe they've gotten the flesh down to almost negative 200 degrees Celsius, around negative 340 Fahrenheit. And at this temperature, uh, first they experiment with just kind of like banging the frozen meat against a wood block with the hand or dropping it. And this doesn't seem to do much of anything interesting. But then what happens if more force is applied? What if you, you know, hit it harder? This appears to be the key. When they hit mm. the nitrogen frozen meat with a hammer, it does in fact shatter. It splits off into many small brittle shards like ice or glass. They say it's a thousand bits of chicken. Oh, man. Well, that that sounds like the Super NES uh, Sub-Zero fatality right there. Yeah. And so the host concludes, quote, it does work, but it's an awful lot tougher than you might expect. So if you just fell over, you wouldn't shatter into a thousand pieces. You might crack a bit. And <laughs> I, I think that they are based on everything I've read. I think they are basically on the money that brittle shattering of flesh is quite possible but it requires a very, very cold piece of meat down to like liquid nitrogen level temperatures. And it requires a very, very heavy impact. Well, everything's coming up sub-zero on this one because he has otherworldly ice magic, uh, <laughs> surely capable of reaching those low temperatures and is a skilled martial artist who knows just just where to hit you and how hard uh, to create this death art that he calls a fatality. So, uh, so and also... If you want to investigate this for yourself, uh, fortunately, in this age of widely distributed video content, there's a bunch of video, too. You can see it for yourself, assuming there's no video trickery involved. I think given the amount of content I've seen like this, that's, you know, it's probably not all explained by video trickery. So there are tons of videos of people deep freezing various meats, animal bones, uh, model bodies, and other fleshy objects with liquid nitrogen, and then shattering them. You know, the internet will provide. Um, so just mentioning a couple of examples, I found one of these was a video from a cooking channel called Chef Steps that was attempting to cut through a cow femur with a heavy cleaver. And with the femur unfrozen, it takes a, a bunch of heavy strokes and like swinging it like an axe. I think it took at least a half dozen strokes. But when a cow femur is frozen in liquid nitrogen, it seems to kind of explode in a shower of brittle pieces after one hit with the same cleaver. 
And uh, you might think, well, how even even a cow femur? I mean, that's a really really thick bone. Uh, but to comment on this, you know, mm-hmm. you you might sometimes think of bones as something that is naturally brittle to begin with, right? It's kind of like a rock. But bones are actually excellent naturally designed shock absorbers when at normal temperatures. I mean, think about all of the stuff you do with your body that just doesn't seem quite right if your bones were actually composed of, say, you know, like rock material uh, of the same size and shape as your bones. Yeah, they they really are quite quite durable. I guess part of it is we tend to we tend to only notice them, uh, you know, when they're hurting or broken or bruised. Right? That's when we mm-hmm. we we begin to realize, oh, my bones. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, a good bone. It's it's like a, a great film director is the director you don't notice. Great bones right. are bones you don't think about because uh, they just do the job. They're just there for you. And so bones are not like rocks. They're they're not composed entirely of brittle mineral content. Instead, they're kind of like a natural mesh of uh, one part structural mineral, but then softer, more ductile material that can stretch and flex and dissipate mechanical stress. And I think of the things that uh, that help absorb and dissipate impact stress on bones, one of them, of course, is collagen, which is a protein content in the bones that's found throughout the hydroxyapatite crystal structure of your bones. But on a deeper chemical level, I also came across an interesting, uh, relatively recent finding that's about exactly what's going on with bones that helps them flex like this. So it was a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of the Sciences in 2014 by Davies et al. I think it was a team based primarily out of Cambridge University. But the short version is that they discovered that a major factor helping bones absorb shock without shattering is what they call a goo that is uh, trapped in between the mineral crystals in our bones. And this goo is actually made of a viscous solution of water containing citrate, which is interesting. So citrate is a derivative of citric acid. It's a natural byproduct of cell metabolism. Uh, But various forms of citrates have tons of uses in chemistry, like uh, one that I think about in, in food uses is uh, trisodium citrate. It's one of the sodium salts of citric acid, and it has a bunch of uses in foods, for example, emulsified cheese sauces. You you know, you ever wonder like what makes something like Velveeta style cheese melt so smoothly instead of breaking and getting all greasy? It's because it has a citrate based uh, uh, emulsifier in it, sodium citrate. Actually, I I don't know for sure if Velveeta in particular uses that one, but I, I know some like processed melting cheeses do. So a, a good amount of American cheese is going to have some kind of emulsifier like that. But anyway, uh, so back to bones, like within our bones, they've, it, they've got this fluid citrate that allows molecules to slip and slide past each other, like we were talking about earlier. And this makes the bones more ductile and less brittle and able to absorb loads and impacts without breaking nearly as easily as they would if they were purely rigid mineral structures like rocks. And there are other interesting videos you can find, too. I found one kind of strange video uh, of a pig heart submerged in liquid nitrogen and, and, and it was left in there until it was deep frozen. And then it was shattered by being thrown against the floor. Uh, assuming that's hmm. real, that seems like pretty good evidence. <laughs> I've seen another one where some people deep froze a sort of simulated model of a frozen human head. Uh, and then they had a boxer smash it with a heavy punch. It kind of shattered. The damage was reasonably shattery. So I, I think I've been convinced. I think the answer is clearly that 
While animal flesh, including a human body, is not very likely to shatter at regular freezer temperatures like zero degrees Fahrenheit or, or a negative 18 Celsius, if you get it really, really cold in the neighborhood of liquid nitrogen temperatures and then you hit it with a very, very heavy impact, shattering becomes a much more realistic reaction. So anyway, c consider me a convert. <laughs> Converted to the ways of sub-zero. All right, on that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, um, I have some additional stuff to throw in about uh, this idea of shattering ice magic and uh, what else we could possibly uh, pull out of the natural world uh, to back this up. I can't wait. All right, we're back. So, Robert, hit me with some shattering ice magic. All right, I have kind of a, a, a shattering ice magic um, uh, buffet here, a few different offerings here. Uh, so first of all, there's frost shattering. This is something we mentioned briefly in the Pycrete episode, but one way that we, we naturally see stone shattered via freezing water occurs via frost shattering. It's a gradual process by which the freezing of water in pore spaces and joints in rock leads to fragmentation. Okay, so this is actually caused by the freezing process itself. Right. And, the, of course, the expansion of water in little cracks and all. Um, you know, this, this gets down to, like, why do we have potholes, right? Yeah. Um, because you end up with water. One of the reasons is you end up with water getting into little cracks in the road. It freezes. It expands. It shatters the, uh, the, the stonework there, and then it has to be repaired. Right. So uh, I don't know how that really helps out Sub-Zero, but it's worth mentioning. Well, I mean, I think it is worth mentioning that Things with water content in them undergo some natural trauma in the freezing process. So like yes. some some foods that you freeze um, don't do so well when freezing. Like you thaw them out and eat them later and maybe something about the texture is kind of wrong. I mean like mm -hmm. freezing can form crystals that just harm the cells in the food. Yeah. Now, another um, idea that comes to mind, this is more of, I guess, a munitions-based uh, thing to think about, but you have dry ice bombs, mm. uh, which you absolutely should not try and make. They're illegal in places and dangerous, but uh, a simple but dangerous explosive device can be made using dry ice, which, uh, again, dry ice is solid carbon dioxide. Uh, and... Um, and, and, and basically, uh, all this uh, really does is just shows that, you know, you, there's a lot of power uh, bound up in the manipulation of the phases of matter, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the expansion and contra contraction of the substances in question. Mm, okay. And that's going to play more into, like, my main idea here, and that is, okay— Sub-Zero, he has this ice magic. He's, uh, he's a master of ice. He can make it into weapons. He can freeze people as they fly through the air. He can do these complex fatalities. But is he only a master of ice phase one? Or might he have magical access to all 17 types of crystalline ice and three types of amorphous ice that we uh, touched on in our previous episode? Oh, okay. Is he the master of many worlds? Yeah, I mean, and that's just uh, known ice. I think they're in total somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 or so theoretical phases of water ice that could be possible. So the question that one might raise is, might there be varieties of ice that would prove more advantageous to magical martial arts than even typical everyday ice, which, of course, is pretty powerful. We've already discussed how it can, it seems like it is, it is you, can, you can certainly like shatter a human head or, given enough time, shatter the stone face of a mountain with its power. But uh, I started looking around about, about this. My, uh, you know, what other varieties of ice 
um, are out there. For example, um, one that came to mind was what if uh, Sub-Zero, instead of using or just instead of only depending on phase one um, ice water, what if he was also a master of what is uh, referred to as super ionic ice or ice 18? Hmm. Now, this is one of the high-pressure ices that can exist in places like the depths of Uranus and Neptune. And it has been created in the lab on Earth as well. For instance, in 2019, University of Rochester scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California used six giant laser beams to compress water into this exotic ice form. So this is this is really weird stuff, and I and I have to say, when you read about this, it really bucks you, you know the everyday idea of what ice even is, and it uh, it also makes you realize like the slim uh, pressure and temperature constraints that make up the human world and ultimately our sort of default understanding of reality. Right. So again, this this is this weird ice. This ice eighteen um, is is, uh, is is made via extreme pressure. We're talking um, one to four million times the pressure of Earth's atmosphere, and uh, and it's it depends on extreme temperatures of three thousand to five thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Huh. <laughs> yeah. So That's, that doesn't it, sound like ice. <laughs> I know it's it's really hot, but uh, um, and it's also it's four times as dense as, as normal ice. Um, and it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's hot, and it's also black. Hmm. And if you were to take this ice and suddenly expose it to Earth's surface to air pressure, it would rapidly decompress. Does that mean explode, or do we not know? Well, I, I couldn't find uh, a write-up that ex- that specifically mentioned explosion. Uh, but we know that rapid decompression can, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that can produce uh, something that could be uh, described as an explosion. So. The way I like to imagine it, okay. uh, you could have Sub-Zero. Feel free, um, you know, video game makers, to steal this uh, for your next uh, video game. But you could have Sub-Zero manipulates the atmosphere around uh, an individual's body, then crushes them down to a mass of high-pressure, high-temperature, black, super-ionic ice. And then he releases this magical pressure that he's built up around it, and then your crumpled, blackened, frozen, high-temperature body would then uh, rapidly decompress and just explode all over the screen. I, I like it. Put it in Mortal Kombat <laughs> 17 or whatever they're on now. <laughs> yeah, whichever one's next. Now, um, a lot of other ice phases are, are, are certainly higher density as well, not necessarily as high density as these, but uh, you also have some that are lower density ices as well, both known and theorized, including, uh, I think, Ice-16 uh, is an example of that. But Ice-16 wouldn't really do Sub-Zero much good unless, based on the, the, some of the articles I was looking at, unless he was looking to harvest gas from the seafloor and transport it in uh, pipes. Uh, that's that's <laughs> okay. one of the main areas where they see... Uh, uh, I-16 research as having a, a real-world benefit. But uh, our universe is home to forms of ice far colder, such as Ice-14, which at around, which uh, is a, a roughly, I think, negative 160 degrees Celsius or negative 256 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is apparently the cold, coldest ice we've yet found in, in the natural uh, world. And uh, this, too, is found on the icy moons, uh, icy moons and outer planets. Uh, so I, I like the idea of Sub-Zero potentially using that as well, the idea of an ice sorcerer using uh, plutonic ice against the occasional literal thunder god that he does battle with. 
That is good. Okay, so here's what I'm thinking. Ice Warlock and the the external power that the Warlock contacts to get his to get his power is a being that lives on Pluto. Yeah, some sort of ice god from the the outer reaches of the solar system. I mean, where else would an ice god live? I know we've been saying we're giving out these ideas for free. Maybe we should just TM stamp everything we're saying. No, you can't <laughs> have it. We're we're making this game. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I have one more example to discuss here on on the topic of frozen things and explosions, uh, because there's the matter of the mysterious Siberian permafrost craters to consider. Craters that, at least in some photos, especially uh, I was looking at one from 2017 that I've included for you to hear uh, to, for you to see as well, Joe. It's the crater of uh, what has been dubbed y- Yamal Crater from the Yamal Peninsula Peninsula in northern Siberia. And it looks hauntingly like a scene from John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, yeah, the ice pit where the, the spaceship mm-hmm. was. Yeah, it's 40 meters wide. That's 131 feet. So it's, it's pretty big. And if you're looking at it, you get the impression that there's either been some sort of an impact or there's been an escape. Something <laughs> has been freed from its icy prison. And this seems to be exactly the case, only instead of an ancient alien visitor shape-shifting its way you know, out of the ice and uh, then ultimately out of the, um, the, the frigid wasteland, instead it is methane exploding out of the permafrost. Whoa, buried natural bombs. Yeah, so basically think to the, the, the frozen woolly mammoth. So the frozen permafrost is an icebox storing these exceptional cases of preserved organic matter. But there also there's plenty of less exciting stuff frozen in there as well. Since it's frozen, none of it truly rots, at least not until the permafrost heats up due to climate change. And as that happens, the rot finally finds these ancient morsels releasing carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide, all greenhouse gases, by the way. Now, methane explosions, are, they're not known to be the cause of the craters, right? It's just a, a hypothesized uh, possible explanation? That's my understanding of it. I was looking around at different articles about it because um, uh, there's other stuff, too, that they've looked at. There's something similar seems to have happened thousands of years ago on the, the floor of the Arctic Ocean in places where it seems like methane venting or even explosions may have uh, occurred, resulting in large craters some 3,000 feet wide, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and then also we're talking about a rare occurrences in remote tundra regions. So I, the way this would supposedly work is the frost would heave up over the course of a year or so. Um, but then that's ultimately hard to observe. And I also don't think there have been any actual explosions witnessed. What you have instead, you'll have some, you know, some people will find this big crater. There'll be some accounts from locals about some loud noise they heard. In some cases, reports of smoke or flame. But, um, but other than that, like, again, there's no footage of this occurring as far as I know. And on top of that, these craters then tend to turn into lakes within a couple of years and are hard to distinguish from other lakes. Uh, this according to uh, Evigny uh, Colvillen of the uh, Skoltex Center for Hydrocarbon Recovery. Man, this is one of those things where there's so much that's potentially amazing in the world that just nobody's around to see. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, so I, as far as I understand, the research is still ongoing and, and, and uh, scientists are still looking into this. For instance, uh, researchers are still debating whether permafrost melting is going to release mostly methane or mostly carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. uh, still figuring all of that out. Well, e- either way, I mean, we don't want more methane or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right, right. The, the melting of the permafrost is, um, 
is, is alarming, uh, certainly, no matter uh, what the exact ramifications are. Well, but what does it mean for Sub-Zero? Um, I don't know, maybe nothing, but it could also provide a mechanism by which a frozen warrior might explode given enough time. I don't know. It depends how you look at it. He, he generally doesn't let you stand there and rot. But they do have a fighter now that is a master of time. So they could like they could they could uh, like double team um, a, a corpse and make it, uh, you know, freeze it and then let it rot. And then it explodes. And you know, the, the, the time master speeds it up there so that it uh, does that. That seems like cheating. If you're a master of time, you're just unbeatable, right? Even if, you, if you're about to lose, you can always go back to start over again? I guess, but that's how video games work, right? So maybe he's perfect. Oh, yeah. He's uh, the living example of save scrubbing. Yes, yes. Well, this one's been fun, Robert. Yes, yeah, it has. And obviously, uh, we'd love to hear from everyone out there about your uh, frozen food exploits. <laughs> about uh, your viewing experience with um, with 90s cinema and the various things that get frozen and exploded, um, or if you have some feedback about our thoughts on the Mortal Kombat franchise, uh, we'd love to hear from you on that as well. Or do you have any uh, uh, you know direct experience uh, of um, the, these permafrost regions we've been discussing here? Perhaps you have some uh, some feedback there. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcast and wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.